0: everybody we are in the book of Ephesians and so if you have a Bible I encourage you to turn there with me the book of Ephesians chapter 1 we're taking our dear sweet time right now through the book um, and we have been in it for several weeks and are just now uh, through verse 3 and looking at verses 4 5 and 6 today just allowing the Word of God to teach us and to shape us and we take the Word of God as it comes, believing that every part of it is uh, for our good and His glory. And so we dive in today into Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. And uh, Love from Eternity Past is uh, the title for today, but it fits within the broader series of what if God was our God? What if Paul's God in the Scriptures was the God that we loved and adored and followed after. It would change everything. And that's what Paul is writing to this precious church and what we are meant to glean today. What does it look like to take God at His word and for God to be our God? So let's dive in here. I want to read verses 3 through 6. For verse 3 is kind of the umbrella over what is now explained in verses 4 through 14. So when it mentions the spiritual blessings in verse 3, verses 4 through 14, explain what those blessings are. And so I want to read verses 3, and then today's focus will be 4, 5, and 6. And then I'll pray. Word of God says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, For even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Let's pray. Father in heaven I pray that in these moments that we have together that our hearts would be stretched in their capacity to love and adore you I ask O oh God that you would come and you would Just breathe a sense of peace and comfort and security and hope and joy over us as a people this morning. I pray that you would comfort the weary and the downcast. I pray that you would speak a strong sense of security for those who feel just so fragile and so weak. And I pray, Father, that all that is done today would be to the praise of Your glory, to the praise of Your glorious grace. We are here by grace alone, and we plead for Your grace to pour out upon us. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know. There's fewer words or sentences that can humble you if your identity is in knowing something or thinking you understand something, your field, sense of expertise, there's fewer phrases that will humble you like, I don't know. And, as C.J. Mahaney points out, there are certain fields that that phrase would not cut it, right? You go to your car mechanic and you say like, okay, there's a rattle in the front of my car and they look at you and just, and I need your help and they look at you and you say, I just don't know. You'd be like, okay, well, um, I need somebody to know. (laughs) I need somebody to fix this. You know, it doesn't necessarily work with your doctor either. You know, you don't regularly keep going back to your doctor if every time you go to them, you say, I'm feeling sick. And what should we do, doc? Oh, I don't know. know, This is not going to fly. And yet we come here, and there are many times as we dive into the depths of one who is known as the creator of all things, the one who has no beginning and no end, and I gladly have to look at you and say many times, I don't know. Because there is something about God that is different than we are. Here's what the scriptures say. Deuteronomy 29:29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There are certain things about God which we have to declare as mystery and we have to be able to say, I just don't know. And there are certain things that are revealed to us in Scripture that we must mine and we must dive into and we must wrestle with and we must apply and we must be okay with both. We must be okay with mystery and we must be actively pursuing the things that are revealed. So... Some of us, where the Scriptures do not speak, we want to know what the answers are to those mysteries. And we dive sometimes into depths that we aren't meant to fully understand. And others of us, we use this phrase mystery as a a hide behind so that we don't have to dive in and discern and discover the depths of what God says in His Word. We need both. We need to ravage the scriptures and we need to say no more than what God says. And so as we dive in today, what we see in verse 4 is this takes place before time began. Okay? I'm already over my head. Okay? This, I'm underwater and we got to declare it. Okay? Because there is something that we all must agree to. There was only one being before time began. And it wasn't you and it wasn't me. It was our God. We're way over our head here. And there's going to be many times as we walk through this that we are colliding with mystery. We need to be okay with that. However, as we continue in our journey in the book of Ephesians, we have to understand this is preserved in Holy Scripture For a reason. And as it is preserved in Holy Scripture. We must understand. As we think about things before time began. We need to understand. Our God has it here. And He has it here for a clear reason. Verse 3 tells us. So that we would bless God. He tells us in verse 6, what does it say in verse 6? All of this, no matter how you define it, is meant to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glory, that is, of his grace. Verse 12 tells us why this is in here. It is so that to the praise of his glory. Verse 14 tells us why these things are in here. It's to the praise of his glory. So no matter what the outcome is, blessing and praise is meant to be the result. And isn't it just like the devil that when phrases like choosing or predestination are in the scriptures, they begin to divide and split the people of God rather than lead them to unify and praise God together. This is in here so that the people of God would not divide, but they would unify around the mysteries of the glories of God and be shouting with all of their being that this God is trustworthy and praiseworthy and I love Him. And so we've got to be careful. Let's don't allow others to define what Paul tells us isn't the result of these verses. To the praise of His glorious grace. so. When you say words that are in the scriptures, let's be clear, I'm not making them up, I'm not pulling categories out, I'm just reading the Bible. And it says here, he chose us in him before the foundation of the earth. The Greek word is where we get this idea of election, and so this word choosing, you've got that there. And then you dive into verse 5 and it says, and he predestined us. All of a sudden people get antsy and nervous and squeamish. Some get arrogant and proud and want to use these to beat each other up and say, look what I know. And it, it just, it's just a mess. And God says, no, this is meant to be to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's, let's dive in here. Let's dive in. Let's don't be afraid. Let's dive in. Hear this. Here's a quote. Nothing is taught in Scripture but what is expedient to know. We must guard against depriving believers of anything disclosed about predestination in Scripture lest we seem either wickedly to defraud them of the blessing of their God or to accuse and scoff at the Holy Spirit for having published what is in any way profitable to suppress. Do you understand what he's saying? The Holy Spirit published it in the Bible, (laughs) so may we not try to remove it. And then he goes on to say, Let us, I say, permit the Christian to open their minds and ears to every utterance of God directed to them, provided, and here is, Crucial words of wisdom, provided it be with such restraint that when the Lord closes his holy lips, we also shall at once close our way to inquiry. By John Calvin. The word goes this far, we have to go that far. But when the word doesn't go there, we dive into mystery. Secret things are from the Lord. What is revealed to us is for us and to our children from generation to generation. So, three ideas. We want to praise God for number one, His sovereign grace. That is, His full control. His grace, that is, undeserved, unmerited favor. We want to praise Him for that. Two. We want to praise Him for His secure goal. There's a goal that these things are leading to, and they are secure and firm. And then we want to praise Him for His sanctifying in-between, the in-between work, what happens before time began, what happens and is secure for our eternity, and the in-between work which we're living in right now. The work, the goal, the in-between, we want to praise Him. So let's dive in. Number one, praise Him for His sovereign grace. Now, it says, verse 4, even as He, that is God the Father, chose us in Him, that is Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world. Okay. Now, this is preserved in Scripture for us to understand That before time began, God chose His people. And that is meant to help us know salvation is all of God. That's the point. Who was there before time began? Only God. It is meant to say salvation is all of Him. And so, who is He? choosing it says us that is the church now you can't just say that this is a corporate thing it's also all the individuals that make up the corporate thing just like as you go on down the forgiveness is applied to individuals the redemptions applied to individuals the holy Spirit's seal is on the individual's heart that make up the whole of the church that's the us god chose us Before the foundation of the world, it is not meant to be controversial. It is meant to be humbling. To the praise of his glorious grace. Why? 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 Because I got my story. It's written in Ephesians 2. I was dead. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. That's me. That's you. Romans 3 says, I wasn't even seeking after God. I wasn't trying to know Him. That's not me. I was trying to know me. I was trying to do what was good for me, not His glory. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, it tells us, but God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. He did that. Dead people don't do things. They stay dead. How did Lazarus wake up from the dead? Jesus goes to him and says, Lazarus, get up. And the word goes forth and his heart wakens. That's my story. It's all of God. It's all of him. To the praise of his glorious grace. That's why, when this is repeated three times like a chorus in verses four through fifteen, four through fourteen, this is the only one, verse six, that highlights the word grace. To the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. But verse 6 has, to the praise of His glory, that is, His grace. Unmerited favor. Before time began. Before we had done good or bad, God in His amazing, unmerited favor, poured out His love. Remarkable. And that's why Romans 9 echoes this way. Paul speaking of Jacob and Esau, he says, Not yet being born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election, that is this very same word in verse 4, might stand, not of works, but him that calls. Isn't that sound just like Ephesians chapter 2? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. What's the gift of God? That's your faith. It's a gift of God, not of works. Lest anybody should say, I did this. It, it's, it couldn't be any clearer. It's a gift of God. And it is meant to be to the praise of His glorious grace. Blessed be God. Blessed be Him. And so, all of this happens, it says... He chose us in him, in Christ. <laughs> if, there's, if there's any hero that speaks to the inability of those that he, who ha, he has rescued, it's the name Jesus. For Jesus had to come because we could not save ourselves. The entire Old Testament is a story of tragedy after tragedy of people not being able to fix their own problems. People cannot save themselves. So when you see it's in him, it's the highlight that Jesus came because you couldn't. Once again, this entire banner over this entire thing is salvation is all of God. That's the point. And so praise be to his glorious grace. Now, how did he do it? How did he do it? That's verse 5. Now, if you follow the outline, to the praise of his sovereign grace and then to the praise of his secure goal, both his choosing and his predestination have a goal. You see, the goal in verse 4 is that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then if you keep going down to verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. Adoption and holy and blameless are the goals. We'll get there in just a second. But right now what I'm seeking to answer is, what's the connection between verses 4 and 5? He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us. I believe the answer is, that's a, that's a, a connection of means. He, he chose us by predestining us in love. Okay, so I just want to keep helping us understand the work of God, His sovereign grace. Verse 5 is how he chose us in him. He did it by predestining us in love. And there are verses that accord with this idea. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. One of the most, I think, favorite passages for all believers. Romans 8 28, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things Nothing slides through the all. All things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Whatever trial you face, God in His amazing sovereign goodness is working everything for your good. Everything. And it comforts you in this moment that your God is able to secure you and to comfort you and to keep you But you got to look at what it's connected to. The confidence we have that God works everything according to His purposes so that even your most intense suffering is working for your good is connected to verses 29 and 30. Not meant to be controversial. It's meant to be securing. Look at verse 29. How do we know that God is able to work all things according to his purpose for those who love him? Because, verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Okay. That's the word that's in our text, right? He chose us by predestining us. And now He's kind of letting us in to how this happened. He, there was foreknowledge that led to predestination. Now these words, they, I mean, they're difficult. But let's just take the first one. Foreknowledge. There's a knowing and then there's a knowing. Does that sound like speak? It's how the Bible speaks. Call it what you wish. There's a knowing and then there's a knowing. Where do we get this idea? Listen to Amos 3.2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. So if you read that as God being aware You only, Israel, have I known. And he's not even aware. Doesn't even know other nations exist. Then the Bible contradicts itself. And that statement is not a true statement. But that's not what it means. What does it mean? There's a knowing beyond just understanding. There's a knowing that involves intimacy. Relationship. A special sense of knowing. You have I known in a special way. Different than I know everybody else. You follow that? There's a knowing that's different than knowing. If you follow. Let's keep going. You might have heard this. Matthew chapter 7 verse 21 through 23. Now not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he says later on, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's that knowing? He didn't know they existed? No. There's an intimate knowing. A knowing that is secure for his children. It is a knowing, like foreknowing. Let's just hit, hit the home run. Genesis 4.1. And Adam knew Eve. And they bore a son. There's a knowing. And then there's a knowing. Right? Okay? There's a knowing. God is saying. This foreknowledge. Knowing before. Is God. Loving. And setting his affections upon a people. In a way that is more intimate, more near, more precious than any marital relationship could even come close to. But it's the only thing we've got to try to compare it to. God knows beforehand by setting His love upon. That's foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is God knowing, setting His love upon. And that setting His love upon... If you are able to in your brain, zip back to Romans 8, 29. It says, those whom He set His love upon, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. He determined beforehand a destiny. He set their boundaries. He determined their trajectory. That's just what it means. What's the trajectory? That they would be conformed to the image of His Son. There would be a people who would get to the end and they would look like Jesus. They would look like his son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is a chain, friends, and a chain that will not be broken. How in the world do you have a sense of your security that you will get to the end? Because God did something before time began and that chain will not be broken. What he began, he will complete. That's the confidence you have that Romans eight twenty eight is true. That everything that is happening, he is working for your good. Because what he begins, he completes. Where does Paul go right after this in Romans 8? He literally says, well, what should we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? Before time began, God, if that God who promises that the chains won't be broken, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies. If that God is for us, who can be against us? He goes on. Like Romans 8 is precious because God is sovereign and in control. He can deliver on his promises because we can't thwart them. If God is for us, who can be against us? That means no one's against you ness will hold up in the courtroom of God. If God did not spare his own son but gave him over for us all, how will you not also in him graciously give you all things in Christ? He will do that because he is in control. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? That means no charge brought against you will stick ultimately in the courtroom of God because God set his love upon you. Who is to condemn? No one because God doesn't condemn you. Who can separate you from the love of God? Nothing. Because what God begins, he completes. Do you see what he's doing? He is anchoring your hope and your comfort in the midst of some of your darkest moments in the fact that before you existed, before anyone existed, God is. And he secures what he completes. Do you see why Paul in prison says, to the praise of glorious grace? You see why he starts here? Oh, how wicked the devil is. To try to use things to divide His people that are meant to secure His people. Here's a summary. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord, hear that, set his love on you and chose you. Does that sound familiar at all? Set his love on you and chose you? For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because. The Lord loves you. <laughs> Let's make sure you follow the logic. I love you and I set my love upon you and chose you. Why did you do that, God? It's because I love you. I love you because I love you. That's the answer. You can't go any past that. The Bible doesn't go past that. Like, you want to know the mystery of why that? I love you because I love you. That's what he says. Yeah, does that hurt your head? Yeah, you just bumped up against mystery. You just had the whiplash of mystery hit you right there. I love you because I love you. That's the summary of Ephesians 1-4. I love you because I love you. I've walked with many people through some of their darkest times. And when people are going through suffering, There's fewer precious phrases than to hear somebody say, I don't know the future. I don't know what's going to happen. But I love you. And I'll be with you. There's a comfort there. There's a specialness when that person says, I love you and I'll be with you. But there's a limit, right? Because that person doesn't know the future. But that's still comforting and it's still precious. What about one who knows the future? Who will never die. Always be with you. And he says, I love you. And I will always be with you. That's comfort. That's the point of this passage. So, Charles Spurgeon gives us a quote. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because God, had God not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. <laughs> and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. To me, that's the echo of Ephesians 2. And it's why Ephesians 1.4 is in the Scriptures in 5. So not only do we praise God for His sovereign grace, we praise Him for the secure goal. The secure goal. What He has done before time began has a goal. And that goal is secure in God. It's secure. This is where, it, go look at verse 4 again. And then verse 5. I'm going to point out both of the goals even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, in order that, with a view towards, we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Christ. He predestined us with a view towards adoption, being in the family of God. So, let's take both of those secure goals. Let's start with the second and end with the first. Let's start with adoption. His predestining work is in order to secure people in his family. It's Romans 8, 28. Those that he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And all of a sudden, when you're declared not guilty, what happens after justification and in between glorification is you are adopted. You're brought into the family. And this is what he says. You are adopted. That is your secured destiny. There's nothing that's going to upset that apple cart. God is going to do it. Now, in history, the Roman form of adoption is is a little different than how we roll today. There is a, a commentator, his name is Hainer, and he highlights... What Roman adoption looked like, what it looked like to be brought into the family. First of all, in that Roman society, the father had absolute power. This is not commendable, but here's how much power he had he literally could kill a member of his family and it not be illegal. Crazy. Like total control. Also, Total property right ownership. That was all his. And therefore, everything that was in his family, he had control over them. Now, if you were to be adopted in that culture, here's what had to happen. The first step is that the child who was going to be adopted had to be sold to the new family three times. Not once, not twice, but three times. Here's the way it would work. The receiving family had to pay a price for the child, and the child goes into that family, and then, after a time, is given back to his original family. And they do it three times to get three amounts of redemption price to get money thought adoption was expensive today i have no idea how that rolled but it didn't you know the three times was kind of excessive it felt but why would they do that it was to show the significance of the transfer and that the child had to be bought which is why it's so important as you read in chapter one this idea of redemption it's the idea of buying out of slavery but once the third time happened Now that child is under the new father until death or until that father released them. And the reason that they were adopted was in order to extend the family line or to continue property ownership. Now, here's what's precious. Paul uses this, not commending its practice, but he talks this way. You once were sons of disobedience and children of wrath. That's your past legacy. Your past father is the devil. And you were called children of disobedience, children of wrath. And yet, you were bought. And when you were bought from your former father, that father now has absolutely no right or responsibility over you any longer. And you have no obligation to them at all. You've been bought, transferred, new family. And this father, this father says, you are mine and I love you. I love you. I have loved you from eternity past. And I love you now. You are mine. I am for you. We are sons and daughters of the king. And he controls us. And there's no safer place to be. And because our God doesn't die, our adoption never ends. We're adopted into his family. And that God has rights over us. To discipline us, yes. But also to care for us. To love us. To provide for us. So when you hear adoption, you should hear deliverance from the grasp of the devil and deliverance to the family of God. That's what is meant to be so important about God's choosing and predestining work is that there's a secure end goal that God will accomplish by faith in Christ you are transferred into his family and that goal was secured before time began now the se- the other goal is he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless early church father Jerome makes this point God did not choose anyone because they were holy, but he chose them in order that they might be holy. Do you get that? He didn't choose them because they were holy. He chose them in order that they might be holy. That's what the text says. Just with different words. And so, this end goal, this future end goal that we would be holy and blameless before him is that God will make us a people set apart And we will have over our lives blameless in the end. In the end. It's our future destiny. No more sin. Can I get an amen for that one? (laughs) Because it's wrecking the present. But our God promises. He is making his people holier and holier and holier in the in between. But he promises us first the goal is secure. You will get to the end. You'll get there. Because I'll get you there. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. I'll get you there. The goal is that you will be holy and blameless. This commentator, Hainer, said, when you see the word holy, it's this idea of being set apart. If a nation was holy, it was different than every other nation. If the tabernacle or the temple was a holy place, it was different than every other place. If God who is holy, He's different than every other God. And so if a people who are holy, they are different than every other people. There's something that marks the people of God that's different than every all other people. It is their God and the reflection of their God through their lives. But remember, this is the end goal. This is the end goal. Colossians chapter 1. Ephesians and Colossians They mirror each other quite often because they were kind of circulated together. Colossians chapter 1 verses 22 through 23 says this. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order, you hear that once again, goal, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's the end future goal, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Now, what's he saying? He's saying your future goal is you'll be holy and blameless, but there's an in-between. There's a right now that you're living in, and that right now you've got to fight for faith. You've got to wrestle. And this is what disorients people. All of a sudden, what you just did is you just went, boom, and you just hit mystery again. Because what do people say? If God has done something before eternity past and He is in control of all things and if all things are fixed and determined then our choices don't matter. We're robots and God is unjust or unloving. But that's not how the Bible talks. You just shifted and went into and past mystery rather than speaking as the Bible speaks. What does the Bible say? God chose us in Him before the foundation of the earth. The end goal is secure. Colossians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 1. You will be holy and blameless in the end. And then all of a sudden Colossians says, if you're faithful, if you're fighting for faith, it says stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Which is it? Is it secure or is it all on me? Yes. Here's what I mean. There's a sanctifying in between to the praise of his glorious grace. Our God is sanctifying you in this in between before time began. And in the end, the secure goal. Hear the word secure. I chose it purposefully secure. It's yours. What God begins, he completes. And yet there's a sanctifying in between. And it speaks to the fact that our choices do matter. Our fight does matter. We must believe. We must repent. We must confess. We must love. We must sacrifice. Those are necessary fruits of the work of faith in the heart. Here's where I get this in connection to Ephesians 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, 10 says this. Verse 10, not chapter 110. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, family, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. But if it's secure, why am I working for anything? Why don't you just talk like the Bible talks? Because of God's calling and election, confirm it. Live it out. That's how it sounds. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Okay. So what's that mean? Well, let's take John 3.18. Here, listen to John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why are they condemned? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That means if you end up in hell, it is because you have chosen not to believe. Your choices matter, right? Doesn't that say that? Is there any other way to read that? Come on, I'm open It says they matter. But C.J. Mahaney says this. If you perish in hell, blame yourself, for it is entirely your fault. But if you should make it to heaven, credit God, for that is entirely his work. Now, all of a sudden, Our brains begin to explode. We feel like we're landing in the land of contradiction. And you are going to be like, you can't have both. You can't have your cake and eat it too. All I'm telling you is, the Bible talks this way. God is the one who gets the ultimate credit and glory and praise. Salvation is all of Him. But I found great help from Tim Keller in this. He has a Sermon that I listened to, His Plans, Your Plans. And I have an extended quote that I just want to read you that might help your brain not be as mushy in this, but still be okay with mystery. Okay, here we go. He highlights a verse, Proverbs 16, Here it is, Proverbs 16, The lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, let's just stop for a second. The lot is cast in the lap. Now, we don't cast lots today, but we do draw straws and flip coins, don't we? Super Bowl, you know, the NFC championship game, decided by the flip of a coin in the sense of who gets the ball first, you know, all that debacle, flip of the coin. Okay? Who does that? Okay? We do. We do that. And it says that choice matters. But it's every decision is from who? The Lord. Choices matter. The Lord's in control. Okay, let's let's keep listening to Tim Keller. Human categories of thought cannot hold those two things together. I say amen. That hurts. We feel like either choices matter, and they are significant, and they have consequences, and that means our destiny is not fixed and history is open. Or we believe everything is fixed. And if everything is fixed, then who cares how you live? It doesn't really matter what you do. So, he goes to Proverbs sixteen nine. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. What does that mean? The heart of the Lord, the heart of a man, plans his way. You, you make choices. You do this or that. That's on you. But the Lord establishes the steps. Here's commentary from Tim Keller. Your plans are yours. Your choices are yours. God is not forcing you in either direction. If you do something stupid, wicked, cruel, or selfish, there will be bad consequences. People will hold you accountable and they should, and God will hold you accountable and he should. Those plans are your or choices are yours. But what actually happens in history, whether it's your words, Proverbs 16:1, or your deeds, Proverbs sixteen three and 9, they, those are absolutely controlled and totally fixed and set by God. There is nothing that is not according to his plans. Your choices belong to you. Whatever happens is completely fixed. <laughs> and you're like, no. <laughs> because the next slide, it's like oil and water is what we think. It just doesn't happen. It has to be some mixture, right? Like a 50-50, 20-80, 40-60. That's how it has to be. No, he says, 100% free, 100% determined under the sovereignty of God. Now, he goes on. I know it's an extended quote, but stay with me. The biblical understanding, number one, doesn't say your choices have no connection to your destiny. And number two, Nor does it say your choices determine your destiny. Instead, the Bible lays something out that says God relates your choices partially to your destiny, but he is the one who fixes everything. End quote. Now, I think we all need to take a nap because that's exhausting. But here's what it is. It's life-giving. because. If everything is fully fixed and your choices don't matter, where's the incentive to work, to love, to sacrifice, to obey any of the commands that are in scripture? But if your choices fully control all the outcome, where's your security? Because what you choose one day, you can unchoose the next. And all of a sudden, the Bible lays out a both-and that bumps us right up against mystery and says, you've got to go as far as the Bible goes and no further. You've got to shut your lips where there's mystery, but you can't stop and say the Bible doesn't say it when we just read it in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. We've got to say what the Bible says. Why would we do that? Because it's to the praise of His glorious grace. It is immensely practical. Immensely practical. This is meant to comfort us that we are saved by grace and make us secure that our destiny is not ultimately in our hands. It's meant to that God is going to sanctify us and get us to the end. It's meant to propel us in love. Here's why I say that. Listen to 2 Timothy 2.10 and I'm done. This is it, okay? This is it therefore i endure everything for the sake of the elect do you hear paul i keep going i don't give up with this idea of god's people are chosen ones before time began and that's going to propel me to love rather than pull me back from love that's just how the bible talks And so he says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ with eternal glory. His awareness of God's sovereignty doesn't keep him from love. It pushes him into love. And it pushes him into love because he knows that God has him. The point of this is that you receive an immense sense of security and comfort and that also it pushes you to be A red hot evangelist. One who is speaking the gospel of life to people because God will change them with his word. That's my story. That's your story. And so, we must talk like the Bible talks. We must be comfortable with mystery. But we must do what Ephesians 1 tells us. We must bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And praise Him for His glorious grace because He has saved us when we could not save ourselves, choosing us before the foundation of the world, setting His love upon us before time began and securing for us an eternal destiny that we could not secure for ourselves, making us children, holy and blameless before Him and promising to be with us in the in-between, to never leave us nor forsake us and always working for our good. To Him, be the praise honor and glory for his great grace amen let's pray father in heaven i just praise you that you are with us and we have had our hearts and our minds stretched in ways that we weren't expecting and yet that's because you're god and we're not and i just pray an immense sense of your comfort and care in the midst of today God you are so good and you are so loving Father please as we face whatever we face today may there be a sense of peace that you will never leave your people and so Father I just ask that our security would be anchored in your sovereign grace and not in our ability to perform. And so as much as we limp along in the in-between, the point is that we are going after him. The point is that we love him as imperfect as we are and that we stand under no condemnation by simple faith alone because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we are secure. The Lord's Supper, oh God, thank you for giving us this moment as a body to say, week in and week out, because you have sent your son to die in our place and you've raised him from the dead. I believe that. Oh, how weak I am, but I believe that. And that's one more evidence that you are securing us. So Father, I pray that a sense of celebration and thanksgiving erupts in our hearts. I pray, O Father, that you in these moments would cause us to feel more secure than ever before. Built upon your strength and not ours. I pray that what would erupt around this room is the simplicity of faith that says I love you I need you to wash me clean I need you to continue to make me more like your son but I believe you're doing it and I'm going to trust you I pray that it would safeguard anyone from licentious living and I pray that it would safeguard anyone from feeling as if everything depends upon them. Oh, Father, may we see our salvation is all of you to the praise of your glorious grace. And so in this moment, as we take the Lord's Supper together, I pray that you will, when you are ready, as a follower of Jesus, get up from your seat and go and take the Lord's Supper. One of the two tables in the front, one in the back, get the bread and the cup and just spend some time wherever you would like just calling out to God and thanking Him for His sovereign grace and the security of the end goal and pleading with Him to continue to make you more like His Son in this in-between. And so, when you are ready, let's take this Lord's Supper together. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I pray that what you would see today is a God who is bigger than you ever thought he could be and one that you can surrender your whole life to. I pray that you would declare your helplessness and inability to make your dead heart alive and you would call out to God to save you in this moment. And he promises he will rescue you and make you new and set you on a journey also secure your hand. Wherever you find yourself, let's take the Lord's Supper together and worship him.